Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country. Wonderful. Or, or potentially also uh, on the podcast, which can be heard at greenmajority.ca, which can be streamed anywhere you can get the internet. Mm. Uh, you are Stefan Hostetter. I am Stefan Hostetter. Dave Hostetter is in the studio, uh, and Saren uh, will be joining us uh, as well, currently teching, but we'll jump in, I'm sure. We I have... like flowers. <laughs> there you go. Um, we have a, a, a packed show. Uh, it has a heads up a depressing show uh, in a number of ways, but Naturally. I think... Um, I think it uh, ties in pretty well with some of the previous conversations we've been having, uh, mm-hmm. especially the couple interviews with uh, Amara and, and Stephen Sharper. I'll get to that in a second, but let's dive into the to the heat in this hot, hot Friday. The specter of climate change always raises its hideous head more direly when the summer strikes, as heat waves and wildfires rage across the world and monsoon season hits. We concede that global heating is a more indirect cause of flooding and worsened storms in terms of the slowing down of jet streams and hotter air over the oceans, but it is an obviously direct cause of heat waves and wildfires. This past June was the hottest ever globally, and early in that month a heat wave depleted a major water reservoir that nourishes the 8 million people of the Indian city of Chennai. June was particularly sweltering for European countries ill-equipped to deal with these ever-rising temperatures. We know that heat records are always being broken, but usually only by a few tenths of a degree. This past month, however, France reached 45.9 degrees Celsius in Galag-Lamante, which obliterated the old record by almost two degrees. Many countries in the rest of Europe were also breaking records. Thousands of schools closed in France, national exams were rescheduled, and people in Paris flooded the massive fountain at the base of the Eiffel Tower, as a French meteorologist likened the weather pattern to Edvard Munch's famous, bald, and deathly painting of a scream. And indeed, the heat map for France did resemble a frightened, hairless, and melting face. Normally smooth asphalt in central France disintegrated in the heat, a bicycle melted in Berlin, and a man was caught cruising on the Autobahn in the nude. A Spanish meteorologist tweeted, Hell is coming, with a video of a heat map of Spain that showed the country transitioning from a marigold orange into the blackened maroon of a dried wound. More recently in Alaska, wildfires have broken out in what is being called a truly unprecedented way, even by those who do not take that word lightly. Fires are trending further north, starting earlier and burning more intensely. The the total CO2 emissions released from fires in the Arctic Circle this past June towers monstrously above the previous June totals for the past 16 years. Tundra has thawed, lush forests have dried up, and an increase in lightning storms has set the north ablaze, with over 1.2 million acres in Alaska already burned and more fires looming. The Alaskan coast is losing its sea ice months earlier than average. The average temperature of the past 12 months has climbed above freezing for the first time in the whole of the 95-year record. The all-time temperature record in Anchorage broke by over 2 degrees Celsius, and recently there was a 12-day stretch in Anchorage, with an average temperature of 81 degrees Fahrenheit, while the city has only seen 17 such days in the past 67 years. Doors and windows are closed at night to keep the smoke out. The city of Fairbanks currently boasts the worst air quality on Earth. Creatures are dying, soot landing on the oceans is quickening the ice melt, and the fires are hastening the disappearance of the permafrost. Even with concerns about climate change growing in Alaska, climate research is under threat from budget cuts to its universities. 
Further south, looming heat waves could soon cause major blackouts in New York, Chicago, and Washington, D.C. And what is usually the hottest part of the summer has yet to arrive. Yet, as climate change marches on, such events will become routine, and scientists have said that global warming has made them five times more likely. Everything I've said so far is consistent with climate models, and wildfires are projected to continue increasing through 2100. A study from 2013 suggested that the number of fire-friendly days would go up by 20 to 50 percent by the middle of the century. And when both the oceans and the lands are heating up, with ever more CO2 being released into the atmosphere, Bob Berwin's employment of the term death spiral does not seem terribly out of place. Of course, we may swing back for a couple of years, but to borrow researcher Rick Thoman's metaphor, a child meandering on the steps of an escalator still makes it to the top. We're already locked in, into a series of unprecedented summers, like the one currently unfolding, with multiple potentially compounding unknowns. Scientists therefore argue that the next few years are crucial, since we don't know how much warming we're committing ourselves to with each passing year. A recent study has found that by 2050, London will be like a drought-ridden Barcelona, Madrid will feel like Marrakesh, and Stockholm will resemble Budapest. At the same time, 104 cities globally, including Montreal and Washington, D.C., will experience environmental conditions never before seen in any major city, and that are in fact currently unknown anywhere on the planet. A study from 2013 has argued that brutal heat and humidity exacerbated by current trends will lead to some 1.5 billion people in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh being unable to survive outside for more than a few hours at a time in a region where huge portions of the population make their living laboring outdoors. In the United States, <clears throat> tens of thousands of more people will die each year from the heat alone. Heat waves are the deadliest natural disaster worldwide, but appear more benign than storms because people tend to drop one by one, and it takes a few weeks to tally what the professionals call the excess mortality. So the warnings of the scientists and civil society groups continue, and the UN is now reporting that there is a climate change-related disaster occurring somewhere in the world every week. They argue for moving away from fossil fuels, resilient strategies and natural solutions like the development and protection of mangroves, wetlands, and forests, all with an holistic eye to those most marginalized, as it appears that our systems as they stand will not be able to ensure that anything will be equitable about the strategies we may choose to implement. And yet, 10 months after the IPCC reported that a radical, that a radical energy transformation will be required over the slim window over the next few years, political setbacks are still occurring everywhere. The report's conclusions were essentially washed away from the recent climate talks in Bonn at the behest of the Saudis, the United States, Russia, Iran, and other oil-producing nations. The DNC, the Democratic National Committee in the US, has not only decided not to have a debate on climate change, but has warned any presidential hopefuls that they will be barred from future debates if they participate in any unofficial debate on the climate crisis in the meantime. With a recent report coming out about the serious health impacts of climate change, including an increase in, in infectious diseases and mental health problems, over 70 health organizations in the U.S. are jointly calling for a transition away from fossil fuels. Bernie Sanders and AOC are calling for the declaration of a climate emergency by Congress, with dozens of others signing on, and most presidential candidates co-sponsoring the resolution as well. 
Donald Trump is even being told by his campaign staff that he has to attempt to broaden his appeal among those who recognize that ecosystems are essential for the survival of human life. And so he has begun a grotesque tightrope walk between a nominal environmentalism on the one hand and a rabid fossil fuel obsession on the other. He has, of course, left the Paris Agreement, opened up protected land for fuel exploitation, dismantled the clean power plan, cut clean water protections, and embraced methane with the same fervor with which he tends to embrace the flag, even as it is becoming clear that we will have to shut all our existing fossil fuel plants down early or fit them with carbon capture mechanisms if we're to meet our modest Paris Agreement goals. In Paris, meanwhile, at the height of the heat wave, Police soaked climate protesters in tear gas at point-blank range and dragged them off along the pavement as they tried to cling to their fellow rebels occupying the street. This week, Extinction Rebellion activists have been arrested all over the UK, occupying the arteries of five major cities as part of their summer uprising. The group contends that they are fighting for a real democracy amidst the existential threat of climate catastrophe, while a former UK intelligence chief argues that they're merely anarchists with a smile, intending to destroy the British state. Finally, I'll end with a happy note. The indigenous Warani tribe in Ecuador has won a major court case against a planned government auction of their Amazonian ancestral lands. Activist Namonte Nenkimo said, quote, This victory means that our Warani people and the future generations the children, our children, will live healthy and without contamination. And that also means to the world that we contribute to the air you breathe, which is from the Amazon. So I did warn everyone that that would be depressing. Um, and I oh, think it, you it doesn't get better from here. It does not get better from here. Um, but I think the... I think that is a good sort of groundwork. You know, we could we could do these types of things pretty commonly of just roundups of of the different heat related uh, disasters. You know, or 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 there's always the, a moment when the show becomes mostly about hurricanes for about a month, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and we, we could literally just constant follow. political backsliding. Yeah, well, the, the same thing's been happening over and over. Again. Well, yeah, like we could just keep we could just make this show about the weather, right? We could just constantly be talking about the different types of weather and weather related events that are you know slowly that are that are impacting individuals across the world's life and that would fill an hour a week on pretty easily you know Mm -hmm. um and and so and so i think but it's also important to think to come back occasionally to the to the the scope of the problem right i think it's one of these issues with all these these infinite intricacies well exactly um and i think the thing that uh we go from here to actually some of the you know some responses and some things are happening and i think the rest of the show sort of highlights uh, one way to respond to the climate crisis. Um, it is not the right way, as you'll see, but it is one way. Um, and I think with climate change specifically, um, it, it really highlights one of the greatest dichotomies in human thought. Um, and bear with me on this from Travis second. Uh, because really what you see in the responses is, uh, is a difference between believing in individualism and believing in collectivism. Um, and if you ask yourself the question, looking at the data available to us, how should I respond? You know, uh, you're sitting here as whoever you are, and you you you, you look at these the, the data, uh, which is unequivocal that that the world is getting hotter, and that here we are. This is not even a question about about whether or not it's too whether or not this is happening. Um, the, you, then you ask yourself, so what's the response? The individual uh, aims to secure themselves. You know, the individual comes out and is like, okay, uh, how do I ensure that I and those who are closest to me survive this? Um, and the collective aims to secure everyone. And, and, they, and that's the question is, how do we change this 
you know, the system or how do we, how do we, how do we all work together to, to, to how do we, like, if your goal is to ensure that the, that the most impacted person is not going to be as impacted, then you sort of, that, that obviously requires the scaling up of ensuring that everyone is, is, is protected from this in some capacity. And I think what we're seeing right now, uh, or, or, and, and what we're moving towards even, even more and more, you know, is, is how tied up capital and the world is into this individualism. Like how intertwined individualism and in capitalism and the capital sort of mindset are, you know, because we're experiencing this 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 moment when when the way that capital is often is responding currently is how do we safeguard ourselves and ourselves? You know, you see an increase in 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 walled off neighborhoods. You see you know you see you see the money moving into into. Um, in, in moving their moving where they live, you know, we'll come to that in a climate apartheid conversation we're about to have. Um, you're seeing all of these responses of how capital is moving, and there's a few exceptions. You know, there's exceptions of people who would make money, you know, uh, from a, tr- a green transition. You know, they're probably a little more on side. Um, and I think you see it in the insurance industry as well, especially the reinsurance industry. They're relatively interested because it works. You know, indus- it, because really, you need. There's a there's a financial value, I guess you could say, for insurance companies to have something more consistent. Um, but uh, but I think you should expect to see capital continue to be more and more tied with individualism in this sort of response. And you should, which is why you sort of need the people power side of this to to be tied towards the collective, tied towards the tied towards moving uh, the other way. Um, and and without that. Without the dichotomy, you're just going to see capital run rampant, and you're just going to see individualism, uh, and and you're going to end up with the question of how who survives that, how many people survive that. You know, uh, when we used to give talks in in schools, we would all we all would often ask the question, who gets to go to Mars? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the answer is, was invariably not the students we're talking Richard to, Richard Branson. Yeah, and also not us. Um, but uh, but Sarah, did you want to jump in? Yeah, no, I just wanted to add as well, like just as the my normal job of being the reminder, just want to remind everyone, of course, that like most almost all rich people don't actually believe in capitalism anyway. Right. Golden parachutes. The the idea of capitalism is that as it currently exists, I'm not we're not academic conversation, like mm. talking about capitalism as it exists, the problem that we're talking about as it relates to solving large scale social problems like climate change is that there's a group of people who use this thing called capitalism to excuse why they have more power than you and why they don't have to suffer consequences, but you do. That's what it really that's what they really mean by that, because if they actually believed in capitalism, why would we be subsidizing the oil industry? Why would failure CEOs who destroy companies get billion-dollar golden parachutes? Mm-hmm. This isn't capitalism. Capitalism is the idea, in theory, we get all told that if you work hard, you get ahead, right? And those people are powerful because they're smarter than you and they're better at what they do than you and they deserve to be rewarded by society. Well, I, I don't see a single piece of what people call capitalism that actually does that. Yeah, I, I think that you quickly discover how much people believe in that as soon as you suggest a 100% estate tax. You know, let's just take you, sorry, all I'm of sorry. your money. You want to see somebody whine for help faster than anything on earth, break the sound barrier, is you take a, like a crumb away from a rich person. <laughs> you want to talk about bootstraps. <laughs> take a bit, take take the millions of dollars away from some millionaire and just see how how much bootstraps they're in favor of. Yeah, the um, but anyways, yeah. So, but uh, we do want to get to one more story, which I think begins this conversation a little more deeply about. May uh, I just say enough about the individualism thing? Yeah, I I want to say that I am for a material collectivism, but I think I'm still 
I'm still I'm still interested in a spiritual individualism. I think we need a a larger a, a way for everyone to survive, that, and that would allow individuals to actually express their real individuality. But mm. that's really more of a. More a about, point that doesn't really apply to you. Is it? Right. The, the to political translation of what you're talking about, David, is democratic socialism. Mm-hmm. It's the idea mm-hmm. that we all help each other have enough to be okay to do what we want to do ourselves. Yeah, to then actually be individuals. Right. Okay, so, um, yes, as many of us seem woefully unprepared, both politically and psychologically, for the changes ahead, more big businesses are preparing financially, as Stefan mentioned, to both protect their existing assets and to capitalize on growing global insecurity. Noah Gallagher-Shannon wrote a recent piece for the New York Times Magazine, for instance, about Pinkerton's corporate uh, security services, in which he outlines the new directions uh, the company has been taking over the past two decades and the disaster lucre they've been reaping over the past five years, which is only set to get fatter. He explains how Pinkerton started out in the 1850s as a private police force in the Wild West, then went into business of breaking up labor strikes and rooting out dissenters, then protected factories during the wars, then expanded into countries where private policing was still allowed, was purchased by a larger company in 1999, expanding into cybersecurity and risk management. More and more, they find themselves preparing corporate defenses in event of catastrophe, or simply to protect rich people from the victims of natural disasters. They'll even train the employees of other companies in evasive driving and escorting goods through disaster zones. Their price, of course, goes up during hurricane season. Much of the recent increased corporate interest in armed security is predicated upon a future of climate change in which everything is unstable and unpredictable. The picture that Gallagher-Shannon paints is generally one of the wealthy protecting themselves from the angry poor, like in the late 1800s when Pinkerton brutally cracked down on labor unrest. Except now, their activities are geared towards resource scarcity. One of the packages they offer is to stock stores of water and food for a given client and watch for any threat that may be on its way. As Gallagher-Shannon puts it, quote, they had taken me to fire automatic weapons, ostensibly as a training exercise against desperate, disaster-ravaged people. It was impossible to experience that and not project it into a future in which, in the absence of true climate policy or mitigation, capital felt free to protect itself from outside risks, whatever form they may take. This anxious clenching on the part of the plutocratic class is also being warned of by the United Nations, who suggest that a climate apartheid could occur if the wealthy decide to purchase themselves out of the worst impacts of climate change while the rest suffer heat, hunger, and conflict. Tom Batchelor of The Independent quotes UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights as saying, quote, climate change is, among other things, an unconscionable assault on the poor. On top of this, we have many corporations planning to capitalize on climate disaster. Jesse Barron, also writing for the New York Times Magazine, penned a piece called How Big Business is Hedging Against the Apocalypse, which includes a list of ways that companies plan to profit from environmental adaptation as well as misery. Some investors, for instance, purchase shares in nickel, cobalt, and lithium mines, which are needed for batteries and electric cars and green, gr- and green grids, while others uh, will buy vertical farms, hydroponic operations, and wastewater recycling companies that will be more uh, valuable in event of a food crisis. Agribusinesses will buy family farms at a discount after drought forces them to sell, or a real estate agent will buy hotels before hurricanes and, bef- uh, before hurricanes and make huge profits off the need for short-term housing. 
Others are buying vineyards to acquire water rights during droughts, buying housing to sell to those who will be forced to leave the coastline, acquiring land rights in Greenland, whose oil and minerals will become available after the ice melts, purchasing Russian farmland in expectation of a global food crisis, buying water to sell to increasingly thirsty Australians, purchasing desalination plants, which are sometimes powered by coal, or planning to profit off malaria drugs as the disease climbs north. As Barron writes, quote, each successive year incinerates the temperature figures of the previous one, yet the stock market continues to break records. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to highlight just how um, already we are experiencing the, the rich buying their way out of uh, a lot of these problems. You know, um, when you when you and, and, and they come in the sort of weird ways, you don't they, they come in like kind of fun interest stories. But then when you sort of take one step further, they become dramatically more concerning. You know, my mind goes to uh, the story that was framed as 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 other people benefiting from the fact that Kanye West had hired private firefighters to protect his his mansion. You know, that was in the way, way, of, uh, way in the ways of, uh, of so forest fires in California. And, you know. That 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 the story there is like oh look these other people also were protected it's like no no what's happening there is we don't have the resources and, and in California especially you know California is a state which is currently using prison labor at two dollars a day to fight forest fires hmm. and they are unable to keep it at bay and the and and if you're rich enough uh, you're able to purchase your own private security private force of. Uh, of, of, of people probably paying them an absolute mint to protect your land. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and if that is not buying your way out of the climate crisis in some capacity, I don't know what is. Was it Hurricane Maria that struck Puerto Rico in 2017? Uh, probably. I think it was Maria. Yeah. And during that, uh, Chris reminded me there, was, um, there were rich people with armed guards uh, who had masks on and were actually carrying illegal weapons. So when something like that hits, especially in a place like Puerto Rico, it's essentially lawless, and the and the wealthy just have uh, free reign of their security operators. Yeah, and and it's and you're, you're and you're looking at these constant, um, and it's and it's and it's in those moments, you know, you go back to even something like, you know, something that 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 is now at this point almost a decade old, I think, and you know Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism, uh, about the, you know the conversation of how much money can be made in response to these disasters, and and yeah, and how much as soon as a state breaks down, those with capital will turn to a very very individualist mindset, and then as soon as as but yet yet still as soon as it's built back up again, will demand their their support and and everyone else to go along with them, and I think it's it's this it's this question of you know this is what i think gets me a lot which is how commonly people are mad uh, at uh, at the protesters because they think they're trying to take something away from them you know like how dare you say i can't go on i, I can't i can't drive my car every single day or that it will be more expensive to do this or that i or that i don't get to do this or i don't get to own this and and there's this belief this feeling as if those protesting those were and those 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 trying to work to shift the system are somehow taking away uh, something that's rightfully theirs and yet you see time and time again the the when when wealth is threatened the first to lose is everybody else you know, the first to lose, the first to be t t tossed, you know, tossed aside, the first to be first to be pushed aside is is all of these people who will who are currently just really mad that someone's making them feel bad 
you know, for their for their particularly destructive habits, mm-hmm. um, while sort of giving a pass to the to the overarching and very dangerous. Uh, other other forces at work. You know, we're going to get into the second segment about about how much you know the the state is now sort of moving m- moving in lockstep with capital in looking in, in paying attention in trying to push back against protests as people trying to push this better place. And that's to me even that's an extra level of scary, right? Like, and as soon as you get as soon as you get capital controlling how the state responds to this, then you've lost the people power part. You know, if, if if the the if the point, the whole point, in some ways, of free mar- of the of the society we've set up is that there are checks and balances to the free market, and the people are supposed to be the checks and balances to the free market. The democracy is supposed to be the thing that holds the free market to you know to not totally destroy the 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 rest of the, the people in society. And and what we're seeing as things worsen is a further degradation of that fact. You know, um, and to me, it's just this sort of. It's this, this, that is, like, if anything, that's the fight of the next few years is, is to pull the state out of the hands of capital and, and, and to force it to address the, the, the climate crisis as the crisis that it is, you know, and, and to f- fight it to become a collectivism uh, or a collective uh, agenda for us all uh, to actually work together. And, and if you don't do that, then you will you're you're leaving the power up to the few individuals who have the capital and so far in history very rarely are the are the powerful few good at deciding what is good for everybody else uh, there are not a lot of great examples of of the totally powerful uh, deciding to do something that that would be okay for everybody else or not that would not be in the best interest. Mm. You know, and I think you're seeing that like with the amount of these eccentric billionaires moving into space exploration, um, <laughs> and you know, that, like these are clearly moves in that direction. Uh, but uh, we're going to come back uh, with Lauren uh, and and everything else. Uh, so, Saren, what do we got? The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country, or perhaps on the podcast. Uh, this is, of course, Stefan Hostetter, one of your co-hosts in studio with, with Dave and Saren. And then I believe also on the phone, we have Lauren Latour. You sure do. Um, so exciting. Amazing. Beautiful. Welcome again. Um, we'll jump right into stories because uh, there's, there's two and they're both depressing. So as Trans Mountain expansion opponents prepare to strengthen their dissenting resolve, Brennan Doherty points out for Star Calgary that there are a few experts willing to bet that the protesters are already being surveilled by police and private security teams hired by energy companies. He, the authors he cites argue that CSIS and the RCMP uh, have been working with oil and gas groups for some time to fight the environmentalists they brand as eco-terrorists, collecting a host of mundane information on peaceful dissenters, potentially turning innocent people into targets of law enforcement who are themselves meeting regularly with private companies to show them classified information. In one case, information about people at a tiny protest was given by businesses to Alberta's counter-terrorism crisis management plan. 
Uh, one academic opined that one of the reasons for collecting this information is to be able to control the media narrative after the fact. Now, on the 8th of July, the British Columbia uh, Civil Liberties Association, the BCCLA, released a collection of documents stemming from its 2014 complaint against the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS. They argue that CSIS illegally monitored indigenous and environmental groups in 2013 over the Northern Gateway Pipeline, which is now dead. CSIS argues that it only took information where necessary about potential violence, and that the thousands of pages of information it held on people and groups who have never been linked to any violence was merely incidental, and it therefore doesn't amount to an actual investigation of lawful advocacy, protest, and dissent, which would be against the law. The review committee that oversees CSIS indeed determined that their activity was lawful. The BCCLA appealed that finding, and now some heavily redacted documents from the hearings have been released. The protest papers indicate that there are hundreds of reports on pipeline opponents, which means that plenty of regular citizens are getting picked up and thrown into a national intelligence database. Precisely what information was shared between CSIS and private oil companies is blacked out from the documents. One CSIS witness argued that the information received from oil companies about environmental groups is not acted upon, but sits in a database in case it is needed after the fact. Professor of Public and International Affairs Sergeant Vucetic told Star Vancouver that one of the most important questions right now politically is how we understand, and I would add how power begins to label, the increasing tendency of civil society groups to revolt against capitalism. Vucetic believes, quote, there is no good answer, and every liberal democracy is dealing with this debate. Of course, pipeline advocates often argue that we must monitor environmentalists because they are most likely funded by foreign funded by foreign special interest groups. On the other hand, we have people like Kevin Taft, three-term member of the Albertan Legislative Assembly, who argue that in fact CSIS, CSIS should be monitoring foreign oil companies like Shell, Chevron, Imperial Oil, and China National. He told Jeremy Nuttall for Star Vancouver, quote, I think Canadians need to be very careful that we are being monitored and tracked and influenced by our own government agencies on behalf of foreign-owned oil companies when we're really just trying to exercise our democratic rights. Canadians need to understand the oil industry is meeting and lobbying every agency of any interest right across Canada constantly. They wine and dine, they give splashy presentations. This is an extraordinary, sophisticated political campaign that's gone on for decades. Yeah, I, I think that... Um, yeah, the, the, I think anything that shows that this is uh, an ongoing and uh, like it's been happening for quite some time. But, you know, like even even when you get someone in Alberta elected promising a, a, a quote unquote war room against, you know, against against activists, um, you know, Jason Kenney literally put, I think, something like twenty five million dollars into this. Um, but uh, but Lauren, let's go to you. Yeah. Um, when I was when I was reading up for this story, um, something stood out. It was, a, I think it was something that somebody at the BC Civil Civil Liberties Union said, but it was basically this whole thing is is kind of, it, it's about our right to question those in power um, and and about who controls and influences government. Um, and, and ultimately this is, <clears throat> pardon me, sorry, it's, it's taxpayer dollars being wasted on monitoring the actions and lives of like, I hate this term, so-called eco-terrorists who are in all honesty, simply people like exercising exercising their constitutional right to assemble and peacefully protest actions, which we know are absolutely integral to a well-functioning democracy. And honestly, like half the time, half the time, organizing and activism is just like editing the same Google Doc for four weeks and like <laughs> going to potluck. Like it's it's insane that so much money is being wasted. 
attempting to stifle these actions when like they are they are constitutionally protected these are things that we have to be able to do in order to ensure a well-functioning democracy and this is such a, a breach of security and it's something that i feel like has sort of become a joke over the last few years it's like you'll be on twitter and people joke about like well at least in the american context like oh like my fbi agent is watching me like cry on my like in front of my computer all day or whatever like it's it's become so normalized that we're surveilled and that we're constantly being monitored that, especially within the activist community, when we just sort of assume it's happening, I feel like we're not taking it as seriously as we should be because because it's, it's become so normal. Yeah, and I think it's important to, to reference or to note, like, how how the, the, the history of surveillance, of, of, of how common it has been for the state and for capital to, to, to surveil groups uh, that they see as threatening, and then, as, but then, as soon as those groups have you know succeeded in some way of making the change, those individuals are suddenly revered um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and celebrated, uh, while while as if as if the state didn't try to stop them. Right. Like it was so quickly the, the state can change its its position of like, oh, now that we've done all, you know, now that like these people are great, you know, like there were people trying, you know, like you, you, you literally have things like, you know, Martin Luther King Day and that guy was on every watch list, you know, mm-hmm. to pretend that the state hasn't tried to stop anything that 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 or that is organized power um, and, and then it won't just and then it will, it will just turn and absorb it into its own narrative so quickly afterwards. And and I think that it's 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 a it's a it's a tactic to 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 keep these types of things down. You know, it's a tactic to to make it much harder to organize. It's a tactic to and and, and then the the much scarier parts of it is are, are the places where you know the state decided that something was quote unquote you know too much of a threat and then went into went in to destroy it in in a number of ways. And again, uh-huh. even those people who they actually who the state murdered <laughs> still get revered and absorbed back into the story of this whole thing. And it's like, and, and, and yet those lives are lives. Those are people. Those are the real people just trying to organize themselves and, and, and push for a better place. And yet it's, it's so constantly camped down. And, and that's what part of this, so tra- especially as we get into this, you know, the larger conversation about surveillance and, and the surveillance state and how much more powerful it could be now, you know, is is uh, some, is, 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 is incredible. Um, but, but I know that, you, that you're sort of, you're, you're quite uh, tapped into the, to the, to the activist community and sort of, like, what, what, like, you just mentioned, you f- if you feel like it's it's been so almost turned into a joke, but it, it is it is very real. Oh no, absolutely! I was I was thinking while I was reading this, I I I know of a couple friends in particular, folks on the West Coast who who have described this phenomena where um, it, it's hard to describe, but like you know how it's like on your phone, you can see that an app is being opened and closed. Like like when you open and close an app, like it it, it toggles in a certain way. Hmm. Um, at least on iPhones, they'll describe looking at their phones and not being, and, and like not necessarily act like accessing a, a given app, but being able to see that it, it appears as though the app is being opened and closed, and 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 sort of phenomena like that, or like a phone kind of like lighting up when it hasn't been touched, or when when you haven't called Siri or whatever, and it's because they're they're fairly certain, and in a lot of cases, I I, I would believe it to be true, especially given the protest papers having come out, that that their phones are being accessed and their phones are being tapped by by, by bodies like CSIS. Um, and then I know I know myself, this is such a, a weird example to draw from, but um, I was in Marrakesh a few years ago. 
And, and, and I know for a while I was on one of these ridiculous watch lists. It was, it was so silly. But I, I was in Marrakesh, and I got to my hotel. I was there for COP22, and, um, and I was the only one of my group that had arrived. And, and the owner of the guest house sort of came out, and he's like, hey, your name's Lauren, right? I was like, yep, my name's Lauren. He goes back into his office, comes out a few minutes later. I was like, yeah, like, what, what was that about? He's like, oh, it's just weird police stuff. They'll call to check up on people when they arrive in the country to make sure they're staying where they say they are. <laughs> so it's, it's it's like the fact that that being on this silly watch list, although although it didn't it didn't impede my participation in any way, but it was just sort of the realization that's like, oh, I'm I really am being monitored whenever yeah. I participate in activity like this is is very surreal and so bizarre and 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 very intimidating for a lot of people and and like and what ends up happening is is not only are you intimidating people within the movement, you're you're preventing people from getting involved because they see those risks, they they see what what activists or people in the organizing community go through and, and they don't necessarily want to expose themselves to that understandably so so it it really does effectively sort of stifle uh people fighting against the status quo in a lot of ways yeah yeah uh, uh we are we, let's uh, move on to the to the second story just so we can make sure we get both in so as canadians we tend to ignore difficult things and stare apathetically mesmerized by the glowing ghost of our own self-perceived benevolence but every once in a while, the white supremacist foundations of our society unequivocally emerge and force us to pay attention. Anybody who takes seriously the question of the legitimacy of the, the, the legitimacy of the Canadian enterprise is, of course, already in the habit of rooting out these holes in the polite Canadian fabric. But the more complacent of us might be stirred by another story out of Ottawapiskat, Ontario, as the community is now being told not to bathe in the water coming from its taps. You might remember Ottawapiskat from 2011, when a housing crisis forced people to live in tents, and we seemed briefly concerned about the living conditions of the peoples our country tried to exterminate. You might also remember how the Harper government at the time blamed Ottawapiskat for wasting their money. They have now declared a state of emergency over the quality of their water, which has degraded to the point of becoming carcinogenic if used long term. This is the sixth emergency the community has declared in the past 13 years. In 2006, Ottawapiskat declared an emergency when its drinking water appeared to be causing rash and dizziness. In 2009, they declared an emergency when sewage invaded their homes. In 2011, they declared short, uh, in, 2000, in 2011, housing shortages forced people to live in tents and unheated trailers, often without access to water or electricity. In 2013, flooding and sewer backups caused people to evacuate. In 2016, they declared a state of emergency after a series of suicide attempts. Now, in 2019, their water is contaminated again. It might be more extreme in Ottawapiskat, but this is something indicative of the, uh, this is somewhat indicative of the state of many other northern communities across the country. Now, some listeners may think it is a relatively small issue, but I think that many of us would agree that it is absolutely central to the future of Canadian democracy. As Cornell West argues, the fundamental question of democracy is the relationship between the public interest and the most vulnerable. You might recall the exchange that occurred two years ago at a press conference held by family members of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, where one of the family members was disrespected by a white reporter, and she eventually stated that the reporter hadn't begun her healing process. I think this means that until we truly listen to the people who are saying that there has been a war conflict against Indigenous peoples from every government, healing can't occur, understanding can't occur, and we can't pretend to be taking the democratic project seriously. And yeah, I think this is you know, uh, there was a there was a thing recently, and uh, sort of a Twitter thing going on about how there are sort of two candidates, uh, and one was a tweet from 
One was a tweet from Catherine McKenna saying how lucky we are to have great, you know, great tap water out of uh, out of the Ottawa. Um, out of Ottawa taps, basically. And and it was, you know, like kind of generic, like, probably just, like, don't use bottled water, we have good tap water. And that was sort of juxtaposed directly beside someone being like, we were told today that we cannot have, you know, we cannot have water. Um, and that we must, you know, that this is going to kill us, basically. Um, and, and that these are two happening in the same society. You know, and and I think if that's that's the case, there is it does fundamentally question uh, the democracy or like where what the values are of the democracy that you're living in. Uh, but Lauren, to you. Yeah, I unfortunately this is a story that I feel like I don't have anything groundbreaking to say on because it's it's the fact that this is still going on is just so mind-boggling. I mean, this was something that that again it's, it's another. I, I hate that we're always just harping on Trudeau and his broken promises, but this is something that he expressly came in saying that he was going to deal with once he was elected prime minister and once his party came into power. And it's just been more people dragging their feet and money not being allocated properly and the, and the, and the actions that need to be taken not being taken. And it just shows how, how in, in bad faith those statements were made. And I was just thinking this morning, I, I was doing a quick sort of like really cursory Google search. And this is a story that I wish was picked up by international media more often because it's like I saw like one story out of the BBC back in 2018, one out of Al Jazeera back in 2016. And, and I feel like this is a story that if it were to be picked up internationally and it were to be splashed across the world, that Canada doesn't have clean drinking water in a lot of its indigenous communities, that like that would be maybe the one thing that would make the liberal government or, or whichever government comes into power next want to take action, because it seems that international shaming is the only thing that works for this bro of a prime minister. And and I and I don't necessarily know how we how we get international attention, but it's like it's sort of like a last ditch effort. It's like, hey, well like what is gonna work to get these people the clean drinking water they need? Because I know I know we reference it or people reference it all the time, but like I mean when Walkerton had a water crisis, what, 15, 16 years ago now, it was immediately remedied. It was remedied in a matter of weeks, if not potentially months. Um, and, and, and I understand um, I'm, not, I'm not at all diminishing what happened in Walkerton. That was a very well, real water crisis. People were really, really ill as a result of it. Um, but that just, it, it, was, it was a really good example of government immediately springing into action and doing exactly what was required to protect a community, and they're just unwilling to do so in this case. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I think I, I can sort of go back to this, um, this, this thought around, you know, uh, around the question of, 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 of what, you know, when, when the, because the, the argument con seems to be uh, why, why these are not being fixed at any, you know, any, any, any quick rate, you know, is that it costs too much money? Right. And and you hear that about the climate crisis as well. You hear, you know, that the fact that like the solutions to these problems cost too much money. You know, who's going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? And and fundamentally, like that question is is I think arguable is, is pretty obviously moot. You know, I think mm -hmm. that it's to me, there's absolutely no one in society, I think, or maybe very few people in society who actually believe that if someone like Jeff Bezos decided that oil water advisories in northern Canada should not exist and that Flint should actually finally fix its pipes. No one thinks that he does not have the capital to fix this. Mm -hmm. Like and there's just like you know if we can if if we can get to Mars we can solve the, like if you have the financial capital to build a spaceship you have a financial capital to build to, to build enough things to solve this you know not like, only that he wouldn't miss it 
Right, yeah, exactly. Like you would, you would, it would, it would be. It's one hundred percent doable with the amount of capital we have currently, unquestionably. And and I and I think that 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 go. So the question, uh, you know, how will we pay for it? Is is not the question that we're actually asking. The question that politicians, I think, are really asking when they say that sentence is how do we like how do we convince the rich people that these people deserve our help, really. You know, like, or, or how do we, how do we, how do we find, like, how do we convince people that, like, how do we, how do we convince the people who have the, the amount of capital, the amount of wealth to, to solve these problems, to actually solve these problems? You know, and, 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 and the answer instead appears to be, well, we should use the state's resources to track them to make sure that they're not risking, you know, anymore. Like, you know, talk about, you know, talk about t- uh, terrorist watch lists and in CSIS, you know, they're, they're most, the, 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 some of the biggest things they're paying attention to, you know, are, are, are indigenous activists who are fighting for things exactly like this. And they're the ones who are getting the most surveillance from the state. Um, and, and that indicates to me the answer to the question is, is not – the question that they're saying is convince us these people are worth protecting, not how do we pay for this. Because we mm-hmm. – we, we, like there's just not – it, it seems like a false question to me. No, in, no, this is environmental racism in action. And if you ever need a good, a good reason or something to point to when people are like, hey, why climate justice? Why not just climate action? Why not green capitalism? It, Instances like what happens in Ottawapiskat and what happens in indigenous communities all over Canada is exactly the reason why we need environmental justice work happening. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I think it's it, it, the a heartening uh, quick segue just because uh, I think you might have an interesting thought on this, Lauren. Is was that um, the, there was a series of protests across Canada on on Thursday. Uh, you may have missed it because the CBC didn't really cover it because it was about the CBC. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, but I, I believe all across Canada, different CBC places had, you know, here in Toronto, we had a few hundred um, people come out. I, I saw, saw you know, videos across Canada of, of, of people coming out and started pushing, you know, talk about the, you know, the, the idea of having a, uh, you earlier mentioned the idea of having a climate debate in the States, but trying to get a climate debate here. Um, you know, is currently being is is currently being pushed and having uh, to to really get it addressed because it's so huge. The question is impossible to really you you can't just have one question about climate change. The question is so is so much of our time, um, and so there's these protests across Canada, uh, and and you know, and then the response is like it, it, you're just watching bureaucrats pass the buck back and forth, um, and so I think the only answer there is to get more and more people on the streets demanding this until it's done. But but Lauren, did you like were you involved in that in the in New York in Ottawa? Yeah, yeah. In Ottawa, it was like like you said, it was fantastic. There were hundreds of people out across across what we call Canada, uh, Ottawa. We specifically had about 140, 150 people out. Um, and again, yeah, people might wonder why something like a climate debate needs to happen. Um, but but again, like this is an example why issues like indigenous water crises wouldn't wouldn't necessarily come up in every debate. But if we have a debate around climate change and a debate around climate justice, issues like this will come up and we will be forcing our political hopefuls to to come out publicly and state what they would or or potentially would not do on a given issue. So this is something that really, really needs to happen in this country. And, and for people who might argue that we don't have single-issue debates, we do. Historically, we've had them on economic issues and, and things like that. So so the precedent is set, and and this is a requirement for, for voters to be able to go forward and, and informatively cast their ballot this October. Um, 
but yeah, uh, th- this Thursday was, or this Wednesday rather, uh, was, was really, really <laughs> fantastic to see happen. So uh, you'll hopefully see more people in the street uh, urging CBC to take action soon as well. Yes, uh, and and hopefully the only people people will be watching that via media and not via CSIS. Uh, the, um, but thank you so much, Lauren. Uh, we'll, uh, have, a, have a wonderful day. Uh, we'll talk to you real soon. Uh, and Saren, what do we got uh, the next music break? We are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT at 9.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as our ever so slightly more appreciated podcast listeners who <laughs> find us, I think, largely by the website greenmajority.ca or possibly directly on iTunes, um, uh, even maybe on YouTube. Or on that good old Facebook. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Although Facebook has decided that we're too political to let us run ads. Yeah. So. Yes. I think they're flagging us. Yeah. Unless you're, well, we're clearly Russian. Of course, <laughs> next week we will, we will be having a discussion about an article a Facebook hater did send us. So. Ah, oh. So, so if you want to, if you want your content on the show, uh, hate us on Facebook. <laughs> Uh, that's the green majority. So can I can <laughs> I s- the dislike button? Can I sneak in my thing? Uh, yeah, or we do, do have one story, uh, but uh, but yeah, go for okay, it. Okay, it's it's more of a quick addendum okay. to what Lauren sure. was talking about. So it's, I think it's better to sneak it out here. So um, previously in the past, oh sorry, so there was two. So one of them was I was thinking this whole show that, wow, for every single week, speaking of Facebook, where people comment on the show post and accuse us of being socialists, this is the one time when you can comment that and you're only wrong by degrees instead of by <laughs> kind because we did actually talk a fair bit about politics today. Yeah. Um, second of all, uh, was, uh, was more that, you know, uh, David in the past, you know, you've, uh, reminded listeners about my, my allusions to the idea that some of these people should be in jail. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just saw it as a good opportunity to clarify, not the, the unique clarification, but to sort of clarify that my position in the light of what we've been talking about today is that if there wasn't a different set of rules for these people, they already would be in jail. So the difference being that it's not a matter of, we need to invent laws that don't exist so that these people can be punished. It's a matter of they would be in jail a hundred times over if not for their undue privilege. Mm. I see dollar signs, color white collared crime. Well, all right. Let's, uh, let's move on to the last story of the day, uh, carrying on our relatively depressing news. Um, well, more like strictly depressing okay. rather than relatively. That's a good point. Very depressing news. So we have all by now heard of the concentration camps set up for migrant families at the U.S.-Mexico border, many of which are being run at a profit. We know that this migration has largely been a result of U.S. meddling both politically and economically. The U.S. supported, for instance, the overthrow of democratic governments in Guatemala in the 50s, Brazil in the 60s, and Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay in the 70s, invaded Panama in the 80s and supported dictatorships in El Salvador and Nicaragua, among other hideous and insidious political maneuvers. U.S. companies have also, of course, made massive profits off selling guns to the places their government helped destabilize. That, of course, further destabilized the region, and now Trump is actually actually trying to stop all Central American migrants, period, from entering the United States, even though they're fleeing places the U.S. has tried to subjugate. On top of this, some journalists and researchers are beginning to argue that many of the migrants now seeking asylum can be classified as climate refugees, fleeing famine caused by drought. 
This is linked with violence, of course, since farmers don't often wish to leave their communities just to end up in cities ruled by violent gangs, and so they risk the long and difficult trek to the United States. But these climate refugees won't be considered legitimate asylum seekers, since under U.S. law, asylum is categorized as only grantable to those fleeing violence. But since harvests have been failing recently, more and more half-starved people are trying desperately to make it to the U.S. As John Carlos Frey told Democracy Now!, quote, this has been going on for five years. In some places that I visited in Guatemala, they have 100% crop failure. They've been unable to harvest absolutely nothing. And most of these communities are based on the agricultural economy. If the crops don't come, there is no other job. Everything in the town relies on the harvest. I've spoken to people who were living on one tortilla a day. They've tried everything. They've tried to sell their farm equipment, their farm animals, their land, to stay in country. They, took for they, took, they look for jobs in the major cities close by, and they still haven't been able to find work. And as Dar Jamal told Democracy Now!, quote, they cannot grow crops. The support to help them find another way of living, even just basic necessities like food, shelter, and health care, is not there. These people are risking their lives to go to a completely different country to try to find help. And think about it. Here in the U.S., so many of us live in this bubble where we, at least for now, have enough food and water and something like health care if we're lucky. How bad would things have to get for each one of us to leave everything that we know and love, places where we've spent large parts of our lives, and go to a completely new foreign country, especially one, we, especially one that we know hates us and rejects us, and the government is demonizing us and going to great lengths to keep us out, and if we manage to get in, is going to terrorize us and kick us out. That's how bad it is for people living in poverty already. Yeah. Um, and so I, there's, there, was one, there was one moment, uh, it, one, one little half quote uh, from there, uh, which said, uh, which was sentence, at least for now. And I think I think that's that's yes. what I'd like to that's what I'd like to end uh, end the show on because the the question of uh, of individualism versus collectivism uh, or or the, how the response to climate change should be or the response to any of these sort of major major injustices should be um, is is a determination by those in power who counts and and as we see you know all the days there's a certain number of people who already don't count. Right. There are these people who who this, the powers that be have decided that it's too expensive to get them, you know, clean water uh, or that or that the responses to climate change uh, should be slow, should be done in a slow enough fashion that these people who are already starving and needing to leave their countries are are, are need to do that. Um, and and the question is, at some point, the, 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 the people who don't count will just slowly increase. Uh, as 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 capital and indiv individualism increases, right? Um, you know the, the the people who have the more power, especially as you see with the wealth gap increase as well, which we're experiencing. You know, the, and so the question of like we have we have security at least for now uh, is when that now is is dependent on your on your current level of security and status and where you live in the world. Um, and so for some people, now is already passed. For a bulk of those of us in the West. You know, we're probably looking at now. Uh, you know, now becomes maybe the next hundred years, um, and then for the for the super wealthy, for the for the the people who can afford, you know, to hire the Pinkertons to run their private security form, their goal right now is to keep that now as far away as possible for them specifically. 
and the response has to find a way. You know, we if we don't care about the people who's now is right now, then we're next. Um, and 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 I, I would argue that that's not the right argument. Like the argument is we should be caring not because of ourselves but because of everyone else. But that's the only way to ensure that we collectively are going to be okay. Uh, is to is to fight the now uh, and act conveniently now. Yeah, and it's it's there's the the one thing about you know if it, with the individual just at the high level that we're ending with right is that the uh, you know I'm I'm fine having a conversation with if people want to say like it's it's it better it's good and it's better to have a system where in some way some people should have more than others which is essentially what that means right it means I don't want you know I don't want everyone to be equal I think there should be some system by which. Some people should have more than others. Nobody believes that. I'll have that conversation, but nobody believes that. Nobody's primary concern in life is that idea. If they think they're one of the ones who's going to have less, not one. Uh, we'll be back. That's it, I think, for the week. Unless, uh, unless that was it. All right, throw away. So uh, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back real soon. Take care. Have a good week, folks. And yeah, we'll see you soon. <laughs>